Aren't you glad we sung that second song there? It really just fits and kind of crowns the whole uh, set that we've been enjoying. Well, on behalf of the leadership of Grace Bible Church, we trust that you've had a blessed Christmas, uh, reflecting on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's always a, a glorious time of year. Last week, we looked in Isaiah chapter 9, of course, a prophecy written 700 years before even the coming of Christ, and, and we unpacked that, and it's a beautiful thing. The people who walk in darkness will what? See a great light. And it said, a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. We know in the New Testament when Jesus has come in time and space, the Apostle John says, and the Word that was with God, right, before the foundation of the world, became flesh. That which was invisible became visible for all to see. The, the Creator entered His very creation as He took on human flesh. Today, what I'd like for us to do is to look into the Gospel of Luke and survey chapters 1 and 2. As you know, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible here at Grace Bible Church. We're in Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, and some of those weeks, just even in recent months, we've only taken one verse. We're going to try to survey 132 verses in one sermon. So obviously, this will be a flyover, as it were. Uh, we'll, we'll glean some highlights, and the Gospels give us different vantage points, and even targeted towards Gentiles or Jews and different things like that. But today in particular, I want us to consider the birth of Jesus through the eyes of Mary, okay? Through the eyes of Mary. She, she's that unique Jewish girl that's chosen to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Celebrating Christmas can be dangerous throughout the centuries. Charles Spurgeon is often quoted, and Chapel Library even has a little track that, that says, why, why Christmas is unscriptural. Now, of course, he's coming at it from a, an angle of the Roman Catholic Church, and he's often quoted this quote that I'm going to give you right now. Um, Certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christ Mass. First, because we do not believe in a mass at all, in fact we abhor it, but whether it be said or sung in Latin or in English, secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant, whatever, for observing any day as the birthday of our Savior, and consequently its observance is a superstition because it is not of divine authority. And we here at Grace Bible Church hold to the regulative principle of worship. We don't do anything except for what is prescribed. And we're not prescribed to, or, or, or commanded to celebrate the birth of our Lord. In fact, you know, there's different estimates as when that began, and some think it's more like the 9th or 10th century. In fact, the resurrection of our Lord is celebrated even uh, before that. Um, but Spurgeon, even Spurgeon, would, would go on to say, and actually if you look at his Met Tab sermon, 63 volumes, and you look towards the end of each volume, there's usually some type of Advent sermon that he would do around Christmas. He says, uh, 
if there's any day of the year which we can be pretty sure that is not the day which our Savior was born, it's the 25th of December. (laughs) And most theologians would agree with that. But he often would preach and reflect on the incarnation of the Son of God. Right In time and space, he came to rescue us. In the fullness of time, he came to rescue us. And I'm convinced that in the realm of Christian liberty, you have freedom to celebrate this holiday called Christmas. And, you know, so long as you're not bowing down and worshiping trees or ornaments or whatever else, you know, but uh, keeping it in the frame of mind. Christmas was actually outlawed in England in 1645 under Oliver Cromwell. And it was reinstated under Charles II when he was restored to the throne. So for some decades, a couple of decades, I think, it was completely outlawed. And then even in early America, the early Puritans, as they would come, Christmas was outlawed from 1659 to 1681. Anyone caught celebrating Christmas was fined five shillings, and it would be a regular work day. So you didn't show up for work, Jonathan, and it's Christmas. You might be fined in those days. And actually, just a little historical novelty here. Um, Even during that time, George Washington's troops was able to surprise the German soldiers who made a big deal of Christmas, and they were engaged in a drunken celebration. And so as he uh, crossed in New Jersey, crossing the Delaware River, he was able to win that battle. So, as I said, Christian liberty, we can celebrate this. But let's Look into God's Word. Um, First, I'm going to pray. I'm not going to actually read the text because I'm going to read as we go through, but let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for those that shed their blood, those that were martyred even to preserve this precious Word. We thank you in these last days you have spoken in your Son, according to Hebrews 1. And so, Lord, as we look into your word, a living word that's living and active, may you, by your Spirit, be active in each of our hearts, even this very day. Help us to leave with wonder and amazement. Help us to, even as Mary pondered these things in her heart, to give careful reasoning and examination of these great truths, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll turn first to uh, Luke 1, and we're going to begin at verse 26. We have five points today. Again, we're looking at Christmas through the eyes of Mary, okay? So keep that in mind. And the first is this. They're all S's, but the simple background. Consider Mary's simple background. And we have that in verses 26 and 27. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the descendants of David, the virgin's name was Mary. So Mary was very lowly, very ordinary. There was nothing special necessarily about Mary. It's external in this town that she's in. In fact, what does it say? It's the town called Nazareth. Now, do you remember, is it in the Gospel of John where, where somebody says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was looked down upon. It was off the beaten path. There was no trade routes that went by it that would make it more popular. And so it was, uh, it was off the beaten path. The Jews in Jerusalem looked down upon the Jews who lived in Galilee in general and thought that they would be tainted by the Gentiles. 
This town wasn't even near the Sea of Galilee where Jesus performed much of his early um, uh, ministry, right? It's not even on the coast. It's not even in the prime real estate section. It's out in the boonies, you might think. Like, if Jesus was born here in San Diego, you'd say, well, where would he be born? The Hotel Del Coronado, right, on Coronado. Or downtown or somewhere central and prime, but no, it's like Buckman Springs. You probably haven't even been there, right? Or Lake Cuyamaca or Julian. Or it's, it's off the beaten path. And that's the idea here. She's a virgin, we're told, Luke records. It speaks to her purity, right? <clears throat> She was probably poor and a peasant, uneducated, and she's living in this small country town. One of the commentators, Philip Hughes, says, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so remember, this is just her simple background. It's amazing when you think how God has chosen the foolish things through the world's eyes to shame the wise. We see Mary, that she was given the greatest honor of any woman to be the mother of Jesus, even in her lowly estate. Martin Luther, the reformer, said God could have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas' daughter, who was fair and rich and clad with gold and broidment clothing, but he preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. And now we're told here that actually she was betrothed. That's that formal engagement that would take a year or longer, right? It was uh, really legally binding. It wasn't an engagement like nowadays where you just you get engaged and you break it off. It was, it was legally binding. In order to cut off a betrothal, it would have to be by death or divorce. And so there's a commitment here. Now, how old is Mary? We've all heard the, you know, the idea. First of all, we're not told. So we have to like kind of look historically and some would say 14 to 15, which is, and my daughter's 15 back there. That's a little weird just to think of her getting married this early. But, um, but actually, historically, they say about 12 to 12 and a half years old is when uh, a young lady could be betrothed um, just as soon as puberty has come. So she, you know, for our sake, we could say 13, 14, maybe as young as 12, maybe as old as 15. Um, and... Joseph, we're told, is a descendant of David. So now we've got some royal line, right? The kingly line here. But in these days, it's not as though he's basking in riches because he's in the royal line, right? And so he's just an ordinary, hardworking carpenter. Perhaps he's 18-ish, you know, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. I doubt he's in his late 20s or 30s. that would be hard to imagine, but, uh, but he's probably just an older teenager, a hard worker. And both are believers, believers and their covenant God. They're very ordinary people, but they're believers. Okay, we're only in two, two verses and I'm still not done yet. Well, we got the time stamp here. Notice it says in the sixth month. You see that? So what does that mean? That's, of course, referring to the previous appearing of Gabriel, which we see in chapter, earlier in chapter 1, if you want to turn to verse 18. When Gabriel appears to Zacharias the priest, it says, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this would be certain? Maybe you can remember this. And, and he's kind of doubting what the, what the angel is saying, that you'll bear a son, they're advanced in years. 
Uh, For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So you have this this idea of there's some doubting there, and he's, he's made mute for at least nine months, right? Perhaps maybe a little longer. And then when he's born uh, in chapter 1 and verse 63, um, he asked for a tablet because he still can't speak, but John is born. This is John the Baptist, of course. And they were all astonished. His name shall be John. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak and praise God. So back to our section here. So the sixth month. So Elizabeth is six months pregnant at this point, and we'll see that Mary goes and visits her. But So that's the simple background, just ordinary, simple, hick town, right? But now the surprising announcement. So read with me 28 all the way down to 38. <clears throat> and coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. We'll pause there and read the next section as we get to it. So, verse 28, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Little 12, 13, 14-year-old girl, maybe she's out doing some laundry or something, or, or preparing to make some bread, and this angel appears. Greetings, favored one. What an astonishment. The angel Gabriel's pronouncing a benediction upon Mary to bless her, not because of her merit, but because of God's great grace. It's important to note, Gabriel is not worshiping Mary here. Greetings, favored one. He's not bowing down worshiping. Now, the Roman Catholic Church uh, have taken this verse and obviously made a prayer out of it. Um, Those of us that used to be even loose Roman Catholics could probably still repeat it by heart, right? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Jesus, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. So you have this idea of really twisting and making merit, taking these verses, greetings favored one, and I'll prove to you exegetically why it is not Mary that dispenses grace. She's the one that's received grace. And they made it into a prayer, as though she is there like as an additional mediator to Christ. We know the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So this prayer uses some biblical language, right? A lot of times error is often mixed with truth, right? And so it can be very subtle. It's biblical language, but it's certainly not theologically correct. It treats Mary as the source of of grace rather than the object of grace. This greetings favored one is a passive participle. It's a, what can be called a divine passive. It's, it's something that God has given to her. 
the grace that Mary was given by God, not the grace that she's able to dispense to others. Notice in verse 29, greetings favor one. That's all he said so far. And look at how Luke records this. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. So she's perplexed. Maybe there was a pause there. She's thinking about these things. She's trying to understand, what, how am I a favored one? What's going on here with this angel that, that has a, appeared to me? And she ponders, which means to think and reason carefully. It's like thinking the most amazing person or famous person that you've ever met. Maybe got an autograph from a quarterback of the Chargers some years back or something like that. Or you got to meet your, your favorite musician at a concert or, or something like that. Or a political leader. I shook the hand of Ronald Reagan. Wow, you know. And, 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 and as wonderful as all of that is, that's, that all pales in comparison to being in the presence of Gabriel, the angel who resides in the presence of God. Well, what's the angel Gabriel's big announcement? We see that in verse 30. I already read 30 to 33. You have, you have this beautiful language here, the terms like the throne of the father David. He will reign. His kingdom will have no end. Gabriel's telling of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's going to accomplish who was he? What will he do? What will his name be? The, the angel reveals all of that. Last week we saw in verse 7 of Isaiah 9, there would be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. You can see the language so similar here. He's going to reign. He's going to have a throne. We already see the extremes of meekness and majesty as we sung. So Mary, in verse 34, asked a question. How can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, is that a question of doubt? Or a question of just logically, how is this going to happen if I'm a virgin, right? So it's not a, I don't think it's doubt in, in any way. Uh, shape or form. Mary was a godly woman committed to saving herself for marriage and preserving her sexual purity. So she asked the genuine question, how is this going to take place? My marriage isn't consummated yet to Joseph. And Luke is drawing, I think, the contrast here between Zacharias, as we saw previously, where he did doubt and was not able to speak for those nine plus months to Mary genuinely asking. It's an honest question, and the angel answers her in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she was called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Luke gives the facts of being conceived by the Holy Spirit. This language of overshadowing goes all the way back to the Exodus, where right the, the pillar of cloud by, by, uh, by day and, and the fire by night is a picture of the Holy Spirit going with the covenant people of God during the Exodus there. 
Uh, The same thing would be true of Jesus' earthly ministry. The Spirit overshadows him, anoints him, and sends him forth. Now, the doctrine of the virgin birth is a vital core Christian doctrine. If 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 you doubt that truth, you can't be a Christian. Just like if you doubt the resurrection, you can't be a Christian. This is what we call a core doctrine that we must believe in. Actually, in your handout, I think on the, the other song sheet, I printed on the back the Nicene Creed. And this is the early church formulating the Holy Trinity, the Father, Christ, and the Spirit. Right, And also, it's, it, if you notice, the largest section of it is about Christ. And it's the Christology that also is here. So this is from 381, the Nicene Creed. I'll just read part of uh, what it says about Jesus And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us, men, and for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. That is, he became a man, by the Holy Spirit, through the Virgin Mary. So, a vital doctrine that we must believe. In verse 36, he mentions Elizabeth, right? Her relative, her cousin, that is actually with child as as sort of a a bit of a proof that that this is going to take place. Now, it's, it's interesting to see Zacharias and Elizabeth advanced in years to actually have a child, but that's not completely foreign in the Bible, right? We see Abraham and Sarah advanced in years, and yet God enabled. So God certainly can do that, and, and, but it's radically different than this being conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see, because what's happening with Mary, it's, it's, there's no male human activity, right? With these others, there's actually sexual intercourse that produces a child, and, and, and so, with this, it's just completely different. Now, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that interesting language? What is she going to do now? She's just been told us. First of all, you see the humility. I'm a servant girl. I'm a servant of God. Lowly, may it be done according to your word. And maybe she's beginning to consider the risk being pregnant and not married. That's a dangerous thing, isn't it? Being open to harsh criticism. Look, at that's Mary. We all know Mary, but look, she's obviously, you know, as she would begin to show, there could be some harsh criticism. She could even be stoned for this. But we see Mary respond humbly to the angel's announcement. But then he leaves. What does she do now? (laughs) Write a letter? Get an email? Post it on Facebook! That's what she should do. Or Instagram or TikTok or whatever your favorite talk talk social thing is. No. What does she do? She begins to think, I could talk to Joseph, but he might not understand. I could talk to my parents, but they may think I'm crazy. You know, I I could call a friend, you know, over or whatever for, for tea, but... But what does she do? She concludes that, I know, my cousin Elizabeth. She's an older woman. 
She's a godly woman. Let me go see her. And so that leads us to our third point. The swift visit to the hill country. Look in verse 39. And at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city of Judah. Now, it's easy to read right over that and think that, oh, she's just crossing town. She'll be there in 30 minutes. The hill country, you know, on the other side of the water well or something like that. But the hill country was far away. This is a journey of about 50 to 60 miles. A four to five day journey, most likely. And so this is no easy undertaking, especially for a young girl. Um, Perhaps she went with some other travelers. Perhaps other family members were going. But she wants to get to Elizabeth. And on the journey, you can just imagine, you know, young girl. I've kind of been through puberty. My emotions are kind of, you know, beginning to get activated and that kind of thing. Did I really see an angel? I mean, is it true? How do I know this is really going to come to you? You can just imagine the doubts that would come upon her. But she wants to go and see Elizabeth. On the journey, we see, or actually no, when she arrives here in verse 40, so she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. What's a greeting? You know, come in. Hi, Elizabeth, it's so great to see you. So that's probably about the extent of what the greeting is. But notice Elizabeth's response. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, however long it was, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me? The mother of my Lord would come to me. And behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has been spoken of by the Lord. Now, we've had several children. You know, in the pregnancy, we all know what it's like to, you know, oh, the baby's kicking, right? You feel that kind of kicking. But I don't think ever it's like, oh, you know, Jamil jumped, for, jumped left for joy in Sandra's womb. No. And so how does, she, how does she know this? What is she saying? Did she really feel that? In fact, how does Elizabeth even know that this is the mother of my Lord? Well, we're told in verse 41, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. So she was able to understand and discern that very truth. And Elizabeth rejoices in verse 45. Mary has believed the word of the Lord. Blessed is she who takes the Lord at his word. Well, actually she remains there for three months. And while she's traveling, uh, maybe on her way up there, she's considering all the biblical implications and the prophecies that occur in the Bible. And maybe she's formulating, if you look, verse 46 to 56, we have what is called the Magnificat, right? It's, it's her wanting to magnify the Lord. And someday, maybe next, next Christmas or whatever, I'd like to just take this portion and unpack it for you. But we have to uh, obviously quickly run through it. 
Uh, where do we get magnificent? It's Latin for my soul magnifies the Lord. It's very similar to the prayer in Hannah, right? When, um, the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew her Bible well. And what I'm about to read to you is either quoted or allusions to the following books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st, 2nd, Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Okay, this is a young girl that knew her Bible and was brought up well. It breaks down into three, I'm telling you this so that as I read it, it might make sense, but she begins in 46 to 49 praising God for what God has done to her individually. Then 50 to 53, she's praising God for what he's done for all men, what he will do for all men. And then the last two verses have reference to what he's done to Israel as God's covenant people. So let's read it. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You want to highlight that verse for your Roman Catholic friends? She's referencing, right? She's referenced. She needs a Savior. Um, so she's not a mediator. Verse 48, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time into all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. And then, and His mercy upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds in His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in thoughts of the heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and He has sent away the rich empty-handed. For He has given help to Israel, His servant, in remembrance of His mercy. And He spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and his descendants forever. And married, stayed there for three months, and then returned home. Now, I don't know all the dynamics of, you know, if she sent an email to Joseph, by the way, I'm just going to hang out for a few months, you know, other, Joseph, she disappeared, you know, but anyway, so she's there for three months, maybe she's beginning to show, and she comes back. Well, now we're going to kind of skip ahead uh, over the birth of John the Baptist and go to chapter 2. And we read Zechariah's prophecy after his tongue was loosened. Uh, that was uh, our New Testament scripture reading, but we don't have time to unpack that. So, Mary is in what town? She gets home? Nazareth. Is Jesus born in Nazareth? No. The, is there a prophecy that says where he will be born? Yes, we read it in Micah, right? Bethlehem. How is God going to get them to Bethlehem? Well, we're told the human reason there in verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now this would be a thing in which males would re report their employment, their land ownership, and, and this kind of thing was every 10 to 14 years or so. Providentially, she's about to give birth, and it happens right now, right? And so that's the human reason of how they got to Bethlehem, but we still have the question of Mary wasn't required to go. Why did she go? Well, several possibilities. Um, certainly it's getting close to the time of her birth. That's probably the, the main reason. But maybe she was enduring harsh ridicule back home as she would begin to show more and more 
And perhaps they even knew about the prophecy in Micah 5 because we saw how well she knows her Bible from the Magnificent. So maybe they already know that. And so definitely this has got to be what they're going to do. So Mary gives birth to a son, verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room at the end. So this is our fourth point, the specifics of the birth of Jesus, verses 6 and 7. It's amazing that the eternal Son of God would be born of a woman, but in God's providence, providence the red carpets weren't rolled out. There wasn't all the, the fanfare and all of that, but rather the birth happens in a stable, perhaps a cave, a place where there's animals. And what comes with animals? Smells, right? Lots of smells. And so that's where Jesus is born in almost total obscurity. J.C. Ryle um, says this, had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and authority, we would have reason to be amazed. But to become poor, as the very poorest of mankind, and lowly to the very lowest, this is love that passes understanding. It is unspeakable. It is unsearchable. Of course, he would live a life of suffering. Our communion meditation was Isaiah 53 earlier this morning in our prayer meeting. And that um, he was despised and forsaken in his suffering. He would endure so much and obtain eternal redemption for us. For our sakes he became poor. Paul captures this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. That through his poverty, you might become rich. So he's born, he's laid in a manger. There's no room at the end. Forgot to go and make a reservation. There's no vacancies whatsoever. Why? Obviously, there's a census. Everybody's coming to Bethlehem. There's a huge amount of people there that's overwhelmed this small town. There's no room. And what is a manger? A feeding trough, right? It's, that's, he was just laid in that. As I said, it could have been a, a cave uh, even a cave where the animals would be kept in a cave, more likely a type of stable just right behind um, the inn. So the specifics of the birth. We saw the, the, the uh, simple circumstances, the surprising announcement, the swift journey to Elizabeth, the specifics, and now the shepherds of Bethlehem, verses 8 to 12. In the same region, there were some shepherds, staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. Interesting transition, Luke, uh, tra as he transitions. The shepherds are tending flocks of sheep that would probably eventually be sacrificed through the priestly system. Um, they're outside of the city. And the Jewish uh, culture, where shepherds looked up to, they were looked down upon. They were considered mostly unclean, somewhat untrustworthy, and yet, notice who the angel's going to appear to now. It's the shepherds. And it's a dark night, a starlit sky, a chilly evening. 
The, the shepherds would huddle together close as the sheep were, were down for the night and, and to, to, to gather, to, to share the warmth as it were. And the hands of the shepherds would be rough and callous from a lifetime of work in the sun and rescuing sheep from danger and fighting off enemies that would come. But look what happens. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. This is an, an intense scene. It's, uh, suddenly, it's like the darkness is pierced, this bright light. It's not just a flashlight or headlight. Suddenly, lights off in the distance. This is the Shekinah glory of God. The light was all around them, and it was piercing and bright. They were, they were fearful. They were frightened, terribly frightened even. They're filled with fear. And what does the angel do as also often? Do not be afraid. There's a reassurance. There's a calming, right? Look at it. Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So it's coming, bringing good news of great joy. The angel appeared to lowly men once again, not to the priests in the temple, not to the Pharisees or the scribes, but to shepherds. Isn't that amazing how the Lord works? You, you can't even make this stuff up. I mean, if, if man was going to create a story like this of redemption, we would have the royalty and all the trappings, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the sense to see that God is pleased to take the simple things of the world to shame the professing wise. Verse 10, bring good tidings. Many years of darkness. There's been silence for 400 years. And suddenly, there's good news being announced. Verse 10, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all people. What is that news? For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a mouthful. This Savior that is born, and at the end of verse 11, these three titles with no articles in their uh, original reveal that He is the Savior. He is the one that will redeem and, and rescue mankind from their sin, their sinful condition, their, their sinful predicament. And, and that comes with authority and power. But then He's Christ. He's the Anointed One. He's Messiah. And so not only a Savior, but Christ, but then Lord that confronts all other authorities. He indeed is Lord, and but there's a sign that's given in verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. Now, okay, if I was a shepherd, <laughs> and I just saw this light, and I just heard this great news, and you know, this language of Savior, Messiah, and Lord, I'm going to find him in a feeding trough? I mean, it's just incredible, the, the amount of faith that you would need. But that's what he says. And then suddenly, notice that word again in verse 13, there appeared with the angel, signal, singular, right, before, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. What a glorious picture here. You've got this army now of angels and an army of warriors, as it were, announcing peace. Isn't that a paradox? Even that, 
And then these three nouns, kind of close together, glory, peace, and please, God's glory, the glory of God. It's a necessary preliminary to real peace that man can have with, with God because of our sin. So his glory is manifested. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Maybe you think of a time of conflict or or with your spouse, or a co-worker, or something like that, but this isn't, or political peace, or world peace, this isn't talking about that. The angels are speaking about peace with God, because our sin has been removed. Our sin has been paid for. That's the only way we can have peace with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe there's someone here that says, look, I used to sin when I was in college, but I'm grown up now, and I'm actually a good person. I give, I volunteer and all of that. No, you're a sinner. You're a sinner by nature. You're a sinner by practice. Be honest with your heart. All have broken the law of God. It is only in Christ that we can have this peace that surpasses understanding. And once we get it, we can never lose it. Isn't that great? Because, I mean, we, we stumble, we make mistakes and all that. If it was up to us, we'd lose it. But we can't lose it. No one will snatch you out of my hand. Jesus uses that analogy in John chapter 10. Christ is peace. He keeps us in peace. Though we fall again and again, He forgives us for Christ's sake and keeps us by His grace. Is this peace for everyone? No, look at the third here. With whom He is pleased. With whom? That's a distinct people there. It's not all mankind, as some Christmas cards might mistranslate this. The men of goodwill or goodwill to all men. That's a poor translation of what's being said here. He displays great divine love to a particular people unconditionally. The angels are not glorifying man for his merits, but God for his grace because he set his love upon a particular people. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. That opening verses 3-14 to 14 of Ephesians 1, all one long sentence in the Greek, three different times according to the kind intention of his will. That's what's here. Whom he is pleased with. That's the idea. So, that was a very quick survey. Actually, verse 15, when the angels had gone away after this incredible experience um, and went into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And notice here, and they came in a hurry. They didn't say, it's already, it's kind of late, it's dark, let's wait till the morning. No, they came in a hurry. we got to see this thing that the angels had made known. And when they had seen this, or yeah, they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement that had been told them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary did what? Treasured all of these things, pondering them, reasoning with those in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen 
just as they had been told them. Well, what a glorious, simple story that Luke records for us. And, and we've just sort of hit some high points on it. But that's Christmas through the eyes of Mary. It's going to be wonderful in heaven to meet Mary, won't it? You ever thought about that? We think about having fellowship and theological discussions with the Apostle Paul, of course, being in the presence of our dear Savior, you know, maybe other spiritual giants, but the Virgin Mary would be interesting to have fellowship with her. Well, quick conclusion, a couple points. First of all, praise God for the incarnation. Give him glory for what he has done. It's his work. Secondly, and I hope nobody does this, uh, propagating the Santa cult, you know. Uh, Santa actually robs, I might have offended somebody. Good, nothing else is new. Uh, Santa robs God of his glory that is due to Jesus Christ alone. When parents teach their kids that he's the most venerated and adored person in the world, who should that be? Jesus Christ. Yeah, Tanya, she's like this. Yeah. Parents faithfully speak of all that he has done. Children long for his arrival, like awaiting his arrival. They pray to him. They seek his blessings. Uh, But he judges if you've been good or bad, even, right? If you've been good or bad. And what does he do? He even writes in a book. Do you see how this is just taking from the, the glory that is due to God? Well, we've seen this beautiful town of Nazareth. We've seen the beautiful town of Bethlehem where Jesus gave birth. Will you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the account of his birth, but we also know that he went to the cross to die a horrible death to purchase mankind, to rescue sinners that deserved to be punished and sent to hell. He went on our behalf. He paid all the sin that we owed. He satisfied God's wrath. Propitiation, the big fancy word, he satisfies God. Just wrath against your sin. He satisfies it. He takes away the wrath. So that when the Father looks upon us, He sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ has died for us. His blood covers us. And our sin has been imputed to Him. That's what makes that possible. So flee to Christ if you're outside of Christ. He will be the one that will judge the unrighteous. That will judge the wicked. Our sin is great. We've got to be honest with ourselves. But we have a greater Savior. Greater than all my sin. God's grace. God's grace, the hymn says. So Jesus gives the invitation. Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're outside of Christ, you don't have true rest. You've got this anxiety because you know you're going to stand before a holy God someday. And you can fret and do all the good works that you want to try to do and show up on that day with suitcases of good works. Look, God, all I did for you. And that will just land you deeper into hell. It's not about works. It's about God's grace that He set His love upon a particular people that all who would repent all that would run to Jesus and trust in Him will be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank You for this beautiful picture of seeing Christmas through the eyes of Mary. We thank You for Luke and his meticulous recording of these events. 
And we thank you that you made him to be a historian, that it's recorded so well for us. Lord, help us to continue to be amazed and to even ponder these things as Mary did. In Jesus' name, amen.